Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. Got a lot coming up this hour. Apparently, AOC is very upset. She's very fresh and she's very faced, but she's also very upset that she has to work all the time. It turns out this Congress thing, it takes work. And that's hard. That's the worst, guys. It's just the worst. But we begin this hour with the breaking news. Beto Mick O'Rourke, Robert O'Rourke. I don't even have to say Mick O'Rourke, right? He's just O'Rourke. Be- Robert, or Robert Francis O'Rourke, running for president, officially running for president on the platform of, I played punk rock, man. I am rad and I can do a kickflip. Whoa, let's play some Beto music. Yeah, Beto O'Rourke, so inspiring. His personal story is so inspiring. I I think the most inspiring thing about Beto O'Rourke's personal story is that time he said he wouldn't run and then he ran. That was the most inspiring thing. He really overcame that obstacle. You know, the obstacle of him saying he wasn't going to run. He just jumped right over it. There was the obstacle, him saying he wasn't going to run. And then, boom, he just burst right through the obstacle. Here's Beto, like four months ago, saying he wasn't going to run in 2020. I'm not looking at 2020, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm completely ruling that out. Um, not going to do that. Uh, no matter what, win or lose, you're not going to run in 2020. Win or lose, I, I'm, not, I'm not running in, in 2020. Um, I, I got to tell you, it, it's, it, it's incredibly flattering that anyone would ask me the question or that, that that's even um, up for discussion. But, but since people have asked, the answer is no. Okay, that is a lie because today he came out and he said, you know what, guys? I was wrong. I brooded. I went in the back room, hit the bong a little bit, played myself some The Cure, and then I just brooded for a while. And when I came out, I made up my mind. It was time for Bill and Beto's radical adventure. It's time for an excellent adventure, guys. Let's do this thing. Beto, announce it, yo. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America. This is a defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. The challenges that we face right now, the interconnected crises in our economy, our democracy, and our climate have never been greater. And they will either consume us or they will afford us the greatest opportunity to unleash the genius of the United States of America. We can begin by fixing our democracy and ensuring that our government works for everyone. This is going to be a positive campaign that seeks to bring out the very best from every single one of us, that seeks to unite a very divided country. There's a lot more to come, but I want to leave you with this. The only way for us to live up to the promise of America is to give it our all and to give it for all of us. Irritating. He is so irritating. I I do not understand how people find this inspiring or charismatic. He is so irritating. He's got the earnestness of somebody who's attempting to sell you a Bible on your doorstep. I mean, he's, he's the most irritating person. I mean, legit, I went to school. And he, he went to Columbia. I went, when I was at Harvard Law School, there were people who were like this. And they were invariably the person, you'd be in the middle of a deep discussion where things you know, got a little fraught. You got in a uh, hard discussion with somebody. And then there would be somebody like Beto who came in with the big wavy arms and the wide eyes and the smile and said, guys, we should all just get along here. I mean, don't we all have more in common than we have apart? Don't we? I mean... Just do some crazy hands. Woo! It's, it's, it's wild. President Trump, with his inerrant eye for insult, I will say this is what, President Trump is an insult comic, and he is fantastic at it. Here's President Trump going after Beto O'Rourke. I pointed out this morning that Beto O'Rourke's hands are wilder than Bernie's. Apparently, President Trump had the same exact observation, which makes me think 
Great minds think alike, guys. Here is President Trump on it. I think he's got a lot of hand movement. I've never seen so much hand movement. I said, is he crazy or is that just the way he acts? So uh, I've never seen hand movement. I watched him a little while this morning doing, I assume it was some kind of a news conference. Uh, and I've actually never seen anything quite like it. Study it. I'm sure you'll agree. I, you know, I, I used to be more worried about beta running against Trump, but if we get material like that, Trump will kill him. I mean, it's just, it's so funny because it's true. Beto's earnestness will be the first thing to go when Trump hits him with a hard right. And because here's the thing, running for president, you have to be sort of a mean bastard. You really do. You have to be a jerk to run for president and to win. There has to be an inner part of you where you will be pushed no further and now you push back. And Beto just seems soft. He just seems soft all the way. Through. And I know he's doing this, I'm optimistic. I'm, look, President Obama had a quality. Underneath all of the veneer of him being a nice guy, President Obama was a jerk. I mean, that dude could cut. That dude could cut. He would cut you if you crossed him. And that's an, it's, it's a quality you require in a president and in a presidential candidate because this is a hard-nosed sport. So Beto going out there with his big hands and his campfire preacher ways, I'm not sure that's going to play. He really does. He, th- there are very few aspects in which he is not highly irritating. One of the things that is most irritating about him is the level of public acclaim he receives for doing absolutely nothing over the course of his career. He served three terms in Congress. Nothing has happened. He has done zero things. He has co-sponsored a bill, one, since he was in Congress. Then he ran for Senate and he came close to beating Ted Cruz. He did not win. And now he is running for president. He's inspiring because we are told he is inspiring. No one knows what his positions are. No one knows what he believes. And the reason the media treat him this way is because he is representative of the media. He's an upper class white guy who spent his 20s basically brooding and doing nothing before he settled down to help the people. Just like all these people in journalism. That's why all the profiles of Beta O'Rourke sound exactly the same. Beta O'Rourke looked over the sunset brooding and thinking about life, considering the challenges that lay ahead. But he knew in the future there would be a bright day as sweat soaked through the back of his blue, his blue shirt. Beto O'Rourke sighed. It's an amazing world, he said, and I love all the people in it. That's every profile of Beto O'Rourke from the mainstream media. Every single one. You can write these things without even having to, to fill in any of the policy positions because it turns out he has no policy positions. He's all over the damn place. Now, what he's starting to do, he, he said that he was a progressive, but he wasn't part of the progressive caucus in Congress. So he was trying to move into the sort of mainstream of the Democratic Party. The problem is the mainstream of the Democratic Party has moved left. So now Beto is saying even more radical things, which, by the way, makes him a far less attractive candidate generally. Remember, one of the reasons people thought Beto might be a good national candidate is they figured, OK, well, if Beto can, can run for president and win Texas, He wins the presidency. If any Democrat wins Texas, the election is over. But Beto ain't going to win Texas, not with policies like this. He hid his radicalism while running against Ted Cruz. Well, he ain't hiding it now. Today, he came out and compared people writing the Green New Deal to the soldiers who died at Normandy. If you think of our leadership, those who preceded us, right? Those who were on the beaches in Normandy, those who faced an existential threat to Western democracy and our way of life, they showed us the way. We, we can all come together, we can unite, we can marshal the resources, and we can convene the countries of the world around otherwise unsolvable problems. That, that's who we are. That's why they call us the indispensable nation. Okay, we're the indispensable nation, and Beto O'Rourke's indispensable. 
And AOC's policy wonks are indispensable in the same way as the people who charged the beaches at Normandy and gave up their lives to fight the Nazis and the fascists. Yeah. All right. Sure. Don't don't blue once Bluto's rolling, you just let him keep talking, man. That's not all that Beto had to say in his inaugural appearance in Iowa. Apparently, he went to a coffee shop and he stood up on the counter. This is considered cool and awesome in in Democrat world. He stood on a counter. Now we're talking. Also, he was railing about abortion. He said abortion is fantastic. Abortion is great. Again, you you can't see his crazy hands. Just know that they're still moving. Somewhere out there in the United States, there's a pair of hands moving without any reference to the words coming out of a guy's face. Those hands belong to Beto O'Rourke. Every woman should be able to make her own decisions about her own body. And then he bows. And then he bows as though he has said something revelatory. That is the position of the Democratic Party and has been for decades. Yeah, but it's revelatory. Oh, wow. The cheers. The che- Wow. He's incredible. How inspiring. What a snore. I mean, honestly, didn't we do this with Obama? And Obama was way better at this than, than Beto O'Rourke is. Nonetheless, he's being seated as high as second in some of the betting polls right now. People have him as high as second. Dan McLaughlin, who's a pollster who, who writes for National Review, he sort of has seeded the field. He says that Kamala Harris is number one because she has an intersectional base that Beto doesn't have. But he puts Beto at number two. He says Beto's going to steal Joe. He's going to take Joe Biden's milkshake. He's going to drink Joe Biden's milkshake. That may be right. Beto does appeal to suburban white women. Beto does appeal to the millennial base of the party. Beto does appeal to all of the liberals who want to feel good about themselves. Beto makes them feel good about themselves. You know, there's a lot of rips on the boomer generation for liking the movie Green Book. You know, which won Best Picture Oscar this year. And the rip was that it was a movie that didn't really take on the issues, that it sort of elided the issues and made people feel better about themselves rather than going directly at the issues as some of the other movies did this year. Beto is the candidate who makes the base of the Democratic Party feel good about itself because he, he again, it's, it's all about the air and it's all about the media who refuse to cover the reality that this guy is a child of privilege, grew up in inordinate wealth, married into inordinate wealth, had power throughout his life. I mean, if you want to talk about the, the white privileged class, Beto O'Rourke is that class. That is Beto. And so what exactly is Beto O'Rourke's background? His background is that he has lived an incredibly wonderful and privileged life. He grew up extraordinarily wealthy. His father was a county commissioner, a county commissioner so powerful that when sheriff's deputies found a condom filled with cocaine in his truck, somebody destroyed it for him. And that was sort of the end of the story. The Houston Chronicle has been covering Beto O'Rourke for years. And here's what they say. They say, running for the U.S. Senate simply as Beto, O'Rourke has sought the reformist high ground with the people-powered campaign, rejecting special interest and corporate PAC money, notwithstanding his roots, in a wealthy, politically connected family that has not been immune to scandal. A former city council member and three-term member of Congress, O'Rourke's early life and career has only recently come under increasing public scrutiny. On the city council, he was accused of conflicts of interest in 2006 for pushing an urban renewal plan involving his wealthy father-in-law, a multinational real estate investor once described as the richest man in El Paso. As a member of Congress and as an investor with an extensive portfolio, he was criticized for taking part in initial public stock offerings in Twitter and several other businesses, an ethics violation that forced him to pay thousands of dollars to the ethics, commi- to, to, to the ethics committee. Along the way, his mother, who was a partner in several business ventures, ran a family furniture store that was targeted by the the IRS in a $630,000 tax fraud case in 2010. 
None of these controversies hurt his progression from Columbia University in New York, then bass player in an underground punk band, then tech entrepreneur in El Paso, and finally a city council member and congressperson. We'll get more into Beta O'Rourke's inspiring background. I mean, deeply inspiring to know that a guy who grew up incredibly rich and powerful and then married an incredibly rich and powerful person can eventually become president of the United States. I know I'm inspired, aren't you? That's America right there. So Beta O'Rourke, his background, suffice it to say he is not actually Beto, right? He does not have an ethnic background. The dude is as white as the day is long. And that's why Hogan Gidley, who is over in the press office for the Trump White House, he mocked Beta O'Rourke today, calling him by his actual given name. Just to follow on that, you, you answered that question by calling him Robert Francis. Is that how the president will refer to him? <laughs> well, he's called him that before on the campaign trail, and why wouldn't he? That's his name. Okay, well, that is true, but we're not supposed to say that because we're supposed to pretend that Beto is one of the people. O'Rourke, according to the Houston Chronicle, came of age surrounded by business and civic leaders who saw it as their mission to advance their city into a cultural and commercial hub. He's a fourth-generation Texan. He's the son of a politically active businessman who worked with former Democratic Governor Mark White. Patrick O'Rourke, who was killed in a bicycle accident in 2001, once ran for Congress, too, as a Republican. According to Joyce Wilson, a nonprofit job training executive who served as El Paso's city manager, his father was beloved, widely regarded and respected. His mother's family likewise was well-established. They're really a great family. O'Rourke has not put any of his personal wealth into his campaigns. He's reported a net worth of about $9 million. He's a real populist, Beto O'Rourke. He's, his, he married into a family. His, his wife's father was one of the richest people in El Paso. And... I have to say, if you look at his personal educational background, he went to Columbia, where he was on the crew team, and then he spent years kind of banging around as a punk rocker because he didn't really have any needs. That's the nice thing about having exorbitantly wealthy parents. You can waste years of your life dressed up as a sheep playing bass guitar in a bad punk rock band. I'm not, that, that's not an exaggeration. That's actually what he did. Here is video of him doing it. Background, that man that you see on the drums that would be Beto O'Rourke wearing a sheep mask. That was his punk, his bad punk rock band. Now, in a normal situation, you would say, wow, isn't that, isn't that privilege? I mean, isn't that what we call white privilege? That you grew up so wealthy and so powerful that you could shrug off, you know, a DWI where you cross over a median lane and nail somebody coming the other direction, then flee the police, where you get arrested for burglary at University of Texas campus, which he was, and it gets dismissed as a misdemeanor. And it just happens that your father is very well-connected and powerful. And then you get to go to Columbia, and then you get to brood, and then you get to play punk rock band, and then you come back and you start a tech company, and magically, very quickly, the tech company starts to do really well. In fact, the tech company is doing so well that you are paying the tech company hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars from your own pocket when you run a campaign. O'Rourke started a company called Stanton Street since 2011. His political campaigns for the House and Senate have paid that company more than $125,000 for web hosting and other services, according to federal campaign reports. Uh, good, good times over there for Beto O'Rourke. But don't worry. He's a man of the people, and that's the really important thing. In other presidential news, breaking news, big news, Cory Booker is dating someone. And no, it is not T-Bone, his fictional friend from Newark. He is dating Rosario Dawson, actress Rosario Dawson. That had been rumored for a long time. But now, Rosario Dawson has confirmed it to TMZ. She was at Reagan National Airport, and uh, she was asked about it because he said that he had a boo in a recent interview. Do we have some Cory Booker music? Yeah, we do. Spartacus. 
I, I can't imagine that what she loves about him is his spontaneity because he's the least spontaneous, most produced politician probably in modern, in modern history. I mean, he, he's really produced. Dawson said it was true. She said, I'm grateful to be with someone I respect and love and admire so much. And then she said that Corey would be an amazing president. She's pushing him with a campaign button. She's not saying whether they're getting married or not. People are already speculating that he will propose to her on one knee in a romantic show of affection just before the New Hampshire primaries, which I think would probably fit the bill. That would fit the bill best because Cory Booker is a guy. That dude is rehearsed beyond all possible measure. So where does all of this stand? Where does all of this, where does all of this come down? Well, when you actually look at the field, you have to handicap it for the various lanes in the Democratic field. And as I mentioned, Dan McLaughlin talks about the various fields in the, the various lanes in the Democratic field in a piece in National Review. He talks about the intersectional lane, race and gender lane. And there he says Kamala Harris obviously has the big advantage. And then he talks about the second lane, age and familiarity. So Biden obviously has the advantage and so does Sanders here. Name recognition, level of comfort. Lane three, Dan McLaughlin says, is anger. Now, who is the angriest person? Because people want somebody angry at President Trump. And there you would imagine that Joe Biden can turn. Maybe Elizabeth Warren has some play there. If Democrats are looking to counter-program, then that would benefit Beto, presumably. Lane four is ideology. And the question is whether there are real differences there. There he says that Kamala Harris is probably the weakest. And finally, the Midwest question. How do these people do in the Midwest? And you figure Biden and Beto have the strongest profile there. Well, breaking news, rockets have now been fired from the Gaza Strip at the general Tel Aviv area. According to Israel TV, sirens sounded in the middle of Tel Aviv, which is Israel's most populous city. They're fired from the Gaza Strip. They actually sailed right over Tel Aviv. They were shot down by the Iron Dome missile defense system. There are no reports of injuries. The Islamic Jihad military group, militant group, that's a terrorist group, claimed responsibility according to Channel 11 TV. The attack took place following a surge of violence along the Gaza-Israel border, which is to say that Hamas terrorists tried to storm the border and Israel repelled them once again. Prime Minister Netanyahu is on his way to the defense ministry in Tel Aviv. This is the first time since the 2014 Gaza war rockets have been aimed at Tel Aviv. One of the rationales for the rockets being aimed at Tel Aviv, presumably, is to shadow the news that there were actual protests against misrule in the Gaza Strip by Hamas. Hamas is the terrorist group that runs the Gaza Strip. And there were protests, and so Hamas just started shooting the protesters. Clearly Israel's fault. And so they decided they would fire missiles into Israel at just random Jews. But don't worry, they weren't firing missiles at Jews. It wasn't anti-Semitic. It was just anti-Israel. That's all. Just, that's why you fire missiles at random Jews who live there, just randos, not at military targets. It's because you hate the general political climate. That's why you do that. That's why you're a terrorist. So that is the breaking news out of Israel right now. Meanwhile, breaking news from the Washington Examiner, too. Yesterday, we discussed the fact that Lisa Page had testified behind closed doors that the Obama DOJ shut down any real investigation into Hillary Clinton, that they said they were not going to prosecute because they didn't believe that there was gross negligence committed, which was to say, we're not prosecuting her under any circumstances. And then James Comey bowed to the pressure from Loretta Lynch and the DOJ and simply took the hit himself. Now we are finding out from the Washington Examiner that fired FBI agent Peter Strzok, you'll remember him as the guy who presided over both the Hillary email investigation as well as the Trump-Russia investigation, the fellow who was assuring his lover, Lisa Page, that there was an insurance policy against Trump becoming president. Fired FBI agent Peter Strzok told Congress last year 
that the agents did not have access to Clinton Foundation emails that were on Hillary Clinton's private server because of a consent agreement negotiated between the DOJ and counsel for Clinton. The agreement was revealed in newly released congressional transcript from Strzok's closed-door testimony at the House Judiciary Committee on June 27, 2018. When asked by then-majority General Counsel Zachary Summers if the Clinton Foundation was on the server, Strzok testified he believed it was on one of the servers, if not the others. But Strzok then stressed that due to an agreement between the Obama DOJ and Hillary Clinton, they were not allowed to search the Clinton Foundation emails for information that could help in their investigation. The FBI would have been investigating Clinton's emails in 2016. That's when Obama was still in office. Summers asked in the 2018 hearing, quote, were you given access to those emails as part of the investigation? Strzok replied, we were not. We did not have access. The FBI's investigation into Clinton focused on whether she had mishandled classified information in emails sent or received through her private server. Strzok said that according to the DOJ, we lacked probable cause to get a search warrant for those servers and projected that either it would take a very long time or it would be impossible to get to the point where we could obtain probable cause to get a warrant. Strzok testified the FBI did not have immediate access to Clinton servers, but rather obtained possession of the servers over time. Presumably that might have been some of the time when Hillary was using bleach bit on her servers. Although the FBI would eventually gain possession of Clinton's server, it was only according to the terms negotiated with Clinton's lawyers. Strzok said the FBI had it voluntarily in the context, in the case of servers, voluntarily in the context of consent that was worked out between the DOJ and counsel for Secretary Clinton. I remember when Michael Cohen was allowed to negotiate with the DOJ as to what materials to turn over to the DOJ. I remember that. Strzok testified that the FBI's ability to search those emails was constrained. He said there was a significant filter team that was put in place to work through the various terms of the various consent agreements. He listed some of the restrictions. He said, this is not an exclusive list, limits of domain, of date ranges, of people. Despite those constraints, Strzok said the FBI was being aggressive in, it, in its investigation. He said, I think we were comparatively aggressive. Agents tend to be much more aggressive in trying to get information. Prosecutors look at it from a different set of perspectives. Strzok said the FBI investigators didn't want to be constrained at all. They were, they were saying, why can't we look at the Clinton Foundation emails? There might be classified information that Hillary is passing along to her friends at the Clinton Foundation, and that's passing over servers that are not protected. FBI Director James Comey ended up clearing Hillary, of course, in July 2016. And he mentioned the fact that 110 emails in 52 email chains contained classified information at the time they were sent or received by Clinton. So, again, well done, Obama DOJ. You covered for your gal admirably. Thankfully, it didn't end up mattering because in your, in, your, in your attempt to cover up for Hillary Clinton, all you ended up doing was delaying the revelation until the week before the election. One of the great self-owns in the history of American politics. Still, it is telling how much the, the Obama DOJ was instrumental in determining the course of the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton. Okay, so we have to talk about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So the, the congresswoman from New York, very fresh and very faced. Last night, she was online. And she was asking people what kind of chair she should buy. This is how she becomes popular. She asks people for advice on what kind of furniture they should buy. And there, there is a question, which is why exactly should she be allowed to buy furniture? She lives in a high-end Navy Yard apartment with apparently like an entire Peloton cycling class available. And that, those classes are nice, let me tell you. They're really great. So I'm glad that she has that. The same lady who says that we should confiscate the wealth of everybody making above a certain amount of money. 
Well, last night she was complaining. She was complaining because it was 8.35 at night and she was still working. Poor AOC. So sad. What a difficult life she leads. Now, those of us who have been working jobs for years, I legitimately can't remember the last time I had a night where I was not, where I stopped working before 9.30 or 10 p.m. I take about an hour and a half break when I get home to take care of my kids and put them to bed. And then it is back to going to work. But for AOC, this is a very, very difficult job. She said it was 8.35 and she started Instagramming about how rough it was. And then she wanted advice. She said it was hard for her to find a chair because she had to go out and find a chair. You know, there's this company, Alexandria. It's called Amazon. Fantastic company. You can order a chair. It comes directly to your door. I know you may have heard of them. Wait, you hate that company. Sorry, my bad. Just like Uber, you hate that company, but you use them too. You may as well use Amazon. I mean, just just go for it. Anyway, here is AOC complaining about how hard her life is. Okay, guys, I'm just getting out of work. That's my office behind me. Um, the thing they don't tell you about working in Congress is that if you do what you're supposed to do, you're working all the time which means that you have no time to like set up your life. So I spent weeks sleeping on an air mattress and I don't own a chair. Wow, what sacrifices. So I'm gonna try to do that. What, oh, oh, what sacrifices. Wow. (laughs) She's so charming. And you know, the the best way to have a market that provides more than one type of chair, honestly, I think she should just take whatever the government gives her. Really, the government should determine what kind of chair she ought to have and what kind of apartment she ought to have and what kind of mattress she ought to have. If it's an air mattress and, a, and, a, and an Apple box, well then, why not just use that? I don't see why she needs more. After all, there are people suffering out there. I mean, isn't that what her own campaign aides have been saying? A former AOC campaign aide came out today and said, we need to take the wealth and make sure that it belongs to everyone. I think we need politicians who are gonna propose solutions as big as the problems that people face. And so that's the reason things like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal are catching on. I don't think it's about democratic socialism or any of these labels. It's about reclaiming what democracy means and democracy means preventing an aristocracy. That you, democracy should mean taking power and wealth from those who hoard it and making sure it belongs to everyone. And I don't think that that is Beto O'Rourke's message right now. Wow, so even Beto is not progressive enough for AOC and team. We need somebody like AOC who lives in a really, really richly apportioned apartment in Washington, D.C. You weren't supposed to report on that, by the way. The media didn't cover that. The media have somehow dug up whether Howard Schultz's apartment was really nice back in the day. He lived in the projects, but they were the nice projects. That's what we're told by The New York Times. Howard Schultz is a bad guy. Therefore, he grew up rich. Beto O'Rourke is a good guy. Therefore, his growing up rich was really an obstacle. That's how this works in the narrative of the media. It is pretty wonderful to watch. AOC, we don't ask where she grew up. Howard Schultz, we do ask where he grew up, even though Howard Schultz grew up in an actual government project and AOC grew up in a pretty nice house in New York. Okay, so meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi pushing what has become a shockingly hot topic on Capitol Hill. Nancy Pelosi is saying she wants 16-year-olds to vote. 16-year-olds to vote. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic idea, Nancy Pelosi. Sure, here she is explaining why people in high school who don't know things and can't drive, should vote. I myself, personally, I'm not speaking for my caucus, I myself have always been for lowering the the voting age to 16. I think it's really important to capture kids when they're in high school, when they're interested in all of this, when they're learning about government to be able to vote. That is that is not necessary. You know, in other words, some of the priorities in this bill are about 
transparency and openness and accessibility and the rest. Okay, so she says that she has always been in favor of, of this because you have to capture the kids. Yeah, they, they, that's right. Got to capture the kids. That's the goal. The goal has always been in public education run by the left to capture the kids at a very young age. Now they just want to effectuate that control by allowing kids to vote when they are 16 years old and don't know anything and are going to vote how their teachers tell them that they ought to vote. So first, you grab control of the means of production in the schools. You grab control of the schools. You grab control of the teachers by unionizing all the schools. And then you grab control of the kids by informing them how to vote when they are 16 years old. If anything, we should be making the age of voting later. I say this as a young person. Still, I get to count myself as a young person. I'm only 35. You, they should be making it like, tw- how about this? If you're still on your parents' health insurance or if you're still living in your parents' basement, no voting for you. How about that? Why don't we start there? Democrats don't want that. They want people who are more dependent on government voting, people who are going to government-run schools. This is just, it's just so silly and it's not real, but it's, it's a bunch of pandering to people who are, are young. Now, listen. People who are young can be really smart. We have lots and lots of young listeners to our show. That's wonderful. I engage with more young people on a regular basis than Nancy Pelosi dreams of doing. That's great. Do I think you should be allowed to vote before you can serve in the military or buy a drink when you're still on your provisional learner's permit? No, I, I don't think that that's a very good idea. My favorite thing about Nancy Pelosi, though, is not that. My favorite thing is when she starts talking about her religious convictions. It's one of my favorite things when people who legitimately don't take religion seriously begin citing their religion in order to justify policies that are wildly outside the general scope of religious morality. So the same people who will promote abortion to point of birth will say, you know, my Catholicism teaches me that we ought to redistribute wealth. Here's Nancy Pelosi doing that routine. I myself as a Catholic believe, as do many of our evangelical friends and the rest who share our belief that this is God's creation and that we have a moral responsibility to be good stewards of it. So this is a very high priority, as you may or not know. It was my flagship issue when I was speaker the first time. Unborn children, not a high priority moral issue. Trees, high priority moral issue. Yeah, go back and read your Bible. Okay, let's talk in just a second about a wonderful story coming out of the Southern Poverty Law Center an egregious hit, hit group designed by the left to go after anyone who is on the mainstream right. Well, very sad news for the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center is basically just another form of media matters. It's a group designed to call everyone they don't like a racist, a sexist, a bigot, a homophobe, or an associate of a hate group. They've labeled me a, a, a hate crime enthusiast, a hate speech enthusiast. They've said the same thing about people like Dennis Prager. They're routinely labeling people and groups as hate crime purveyors and hate speech purveyors. They even lost a, a recent judgment for labeling a Muslim guy from Britain, a hate speech purveyor, Majid Nawaz, and they had to pay him a settlement, is uh, I believe the case. Well, now, according to the Montgomery advisor, the Southern Poverty Law Center has fired Morris Dees, their co-founder and formal, former chief litigator. Dees co-founded the organization in 1971. The SPLC president, Richard Cohen, said in a statement that Dees' dismissal was effective on Wednesday, March 13th, quote, as a civil rights organization, the SPLC is committed to ensuring that the conduct of those our staff reflect the, uh, our, of our staff reflects the mission of the organization and the values we hope to instill in the world. When one of our own fails to meet those standards, no matter his or her role in the organization, we take it seriously and must take appropriate action. Today, we announced a number of immediate concrete next steps we're taking, including bringing in an outside organization to conduct a comprehensive assessment of our internal climate and workplace practices, 
to ensure that our talented staff is working in the environment that they deserve, one in which all voices are heard and all staff members are respected. It is unclear why exactly they fired Dees. They scrubbed his biography. Dees attended Sydney Lanier High School and ran a direct sale book publishing company while attending University of Alabama. He's been a fixture in politics since the group's ascension. In 1994, the Montgomery Advisor Series provided a deep look into the organization controlled by the multimillionaire Dees, illustrating his near-singular control over the organization and its mammoth budget. The series alleged discriminatory treatment of black employees within the advocacy group itself. So, yeah, the SPLC gets pretty much everything they deserve. The the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, is another badly motivated leftist activist group designed to take down people who disagree with them. So very, very sad, very, very sad news. Speaking along the same lines, Angelo Corazon is lying openly to the media. He is the head of MMFA, and he is lying openly to members of the media at this point about just what it is he did wrong. You'll remember that Angelo Corazon, the head of MMFA, MMFA, Media Matters for America, was very upset at Tucker Carlson for his bad old comments. It now turns out that Corazon has some bad old comments of his own. Here is Tucker Carlson shellacking him last night on his show. Carasone runs Media Matters. Almost every day he issues outraged press releases accusing other people of bigotry. And yet, because everything is irony, Carasone is himself an enthusiastic bigot. We know this for sure because he has written about it extensively. It turns out that for years Carasone maintained a racist blog. Media Matters probably ought to issue a press release about this. They've done a lot more for a lot less. Okay, well now, Brian Stelter is just repeating Angelo Corazon's obvious lies back to Brian Stelter at CNN. So apparently, he sends a statement to Brian Stelter, who's been playing defense for him over at CNN, because CNN is very enthused about Media Matters going after Tucker Carlson, saying, quote, I've addressed this in the past, but they'll keep pushing it regardless. It's happened several times since 2012 starting with Rush Limbaugh, then Donald Trump, then Sean Hannity, and now Tucker. They all pushed the same posts. The posts are gross content. Yes, I grew up as the overweight gay kid in an all-boy school. Bullying and abuse was relentless and basically awful until one day I fought back and it stopped. That experience had a major effect on my trajectory in my life, especially the fighting back part. That took many forms over the years. I wrote those things on a short-lived website while I was in college. The entire context and tone of the site was intended to be a giant, obnoxious right-wing caricature, a parody of a right-wing blowhard living my life. It's awful and grotesque, which was sort of the point, but it didn't work. I wasn't really good at it, and it wasn't really me. I stopped it after a short while and found better ways and more constructive ways to channel my energy. I'm not excusing it, but the circumstances around it and the specific context that all these posts were written in are important to understand why they're like that. And Brian Stelter immediately just tweets this out as though this is true. If you go back and read the posts, it is obvious they are not parodical. In fact, they rip into conservatives in the posts. So it's just not true. But Angelo Curason told Brian Stelter, who dutifully reported this as truth, quote, I don't speak or write like that. They don't reveal some hidden true self or something. As a testament to that, this is literally all they have and all that they have had for all these years. Out of 65,000 tweets, years of public comments and media hits, countless Facebook posts, and plenty of other websites and blog sites after that now defunct one, the only thing they ever highlight are those posts which were specifically written with the intent of underscoring just how gross and horrible right-wing blowhards are. So Stelter parrots that lie. But there is an underlying point here where Curacao is right. And that is, you judge a person by the the entirety of their work. Exactly the opposite of what Media Matters does. Exactly the opposite of what they do. Instead of trying to judge people overall on the basis of their actual viewpoints, Media Matters goes back and finds one bad thing you said and takes it out of context and then tries to club you to death with it. 
So Angelo Corazon gets everything he deserves, everything he gets right here. So does Media Matters, so does the SPLC. Badly motivated actors trying to destroy political opposition with faux outrage is gross and it needs to stop. Well, we'll be back here tomorrow breaking down the latest, particularly in the presidential race, where Beto is in, man. Yeah. Well, kick, flip, and skate out till tomorrow, bros. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Hold up. 